out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you, well, to the end of the interview, basically. As you know, we love a special guest. We do. It's true. Um, Just in case you hadn't noticed. And this week, it's not even going to be indie pop. It's punk, because uh, I spoke to two members, not quite two members, but you'll get the gist when I explain, um, who started the Roxy nightclub, punk club, um, back in 76 into 77, 100 days. That's the business. Anyway, it is basically going to be Andrew... Chesovsky, yes, I've said it, and also his partner Susan Carrington. Um, now, with the interview, it's good quality. Let's face it, I think. Well, you know the the actual audio, but um, there was a slight issue that Susan couldn't be talking at the same time as Andrew. So mostly it's um, with me and Andrew. But at the end, do stay stay with it. It does go on, though. Um, We have a bit of a chat, uh, me and Susan as well, to talk about life, love and poetry. And also lots of other stuff as well, which I won't spoil. Well, I could do. But um, yeah, anyway, so look, after several minutes of casual chat, talking about this and that, basically trying to work out how to use the technology. We're old, okay? Um, We got down to that exciting subject that was, you guessed it, the early years. Andrew, Susan, well, especially Andrew, tell us more. Tell us now. I'll, I'll run through very quickly. My parents, as you know from my name, are Polish. Yes. So, so that so they came here after the, first, the Second World War, which they're allowed to do because my father was in the Allied forces and obviously fought for Britain. And one of the, the deals was that at the end of the war, when they were all demobbed, they could choose to come to any of the countries that that were in the Allied forces, which is like South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and UK. And my parents decided to choose the UK simply if they ever wanted to go back to Poland, it's the nearest point. Yes. Well, it's as simple as that. Because I came... I come from a village in East Anglia and there were several families, um, Polish families, who'd had the same story coming over in the Second World War and then staying. Um, one was called Katisha and the other one was, um, I can't remember what the other family were called, but they were they were both farmers, actually. They both went into the farming profession. It was their thing. So, well, uh, uh, the, 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 the Polish nation, certainly then and probably still a lot now, was very agricultural. I mean, you know, sort of 80% of the people lived on land. Yes, and um, they loved it. Yeah, well, you know, mm. you know. So yes, that's when I came across my. I suppose he was a bit older than me. Edward Katisha was his name. So there you go. So when did you become? When did what was it? What was happening for you in the sixties? Then you know what was the kind of formative period then? Yeah, I mean, so I was born in forty nine, right? So that makes us now seventy one. Um, so obviously I was a teenager through the fifth, well, the, uh, the mid-60s, mid-60s, a teenager. And just like any teenager, you were hanging out with the kids from the school, beginning to discover girls, um, not the drink yet, but uh, certainly music. And yeah, I think that a lot of the young people, then anyway, was your, your only introduction was the gramophone in the front room, usually secondhand, and really the, your parents' record collection. Mm-hmm. And you, you didn't have any income of your own, so you weren't buying anything. You just, things came your way by maybe, you know, father's friends dropping off and off a, a record or something. Yes. Yeah. And did you, and were you picking up? Because, I mean, you're almost the same age as Lemmy and David Bowie, who are my two, Mm. you know, my sort of uh, heroes, I suppose. Well, And then now you've got a third one. And I've got a third one. So you were from a very similar period, because, I mean, when they ever said about, you know, their first musical influence, both both would say Little Richard, and then it was all the other people like, you know, Elvis. Oh, if you want specific names... um, because it was more father orientated, it was Roy Orbison, Jim Reeves, who were the big singers of their time. Yes, my parents loved Jim Reeves. I, mm. I, I remember that album because when they got married, they're a bit older than you. They had to sell all their possessions, including their record players and everything, just to sort of scrape the money. Because no one ever mm. borrowed money in, in those days. You just had to mm. earn it, save it, and then just kind of borrow, borrow, 
you know, them get a, I think it was a record player we got again in the 70s and one of them was the best of Jim Reeves and because there was only four records and um, I did hear that record a lot, Jim Reeves. Was, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you did get your value from a record in those days. You just didn't, you didn't waste it, did you? You didn't sort of go, well, I'm not sure, but I like it. It's like you paid. It took you six months to earn it, you know, to earn that money. So you're not that's gonna... right. And you will listen to it from beginning to end <laughs> over and over again. And you get to like it very easily. <laughs> you want to like it, really. That's, let's face it, even the last song on side two. So, yeah, so did, were you picking up were you based in London, by the way? Yeah, always. Um, yeah, we moved to Brixton, which is South London, in 1960. So, that, so I would have been obviously 11 at the time and went to the secondary school, which was uh, in just outside Brixton, not far away. And so that was my teenage years. Yes. Growing up in Brixton, yeah. And was it an exciting, were you, did you pick up on the exciting counterculture that was happening with, you know, the, the birth of sort of the Beatles with their pop and then the more acidy kind of counterculture hippie? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I think most people, it's true, when they're 11, 12, 13, as I start to flower, as I call it, they become aware of the rest of the world, the things that are going on, uh, and, and music will always be a, a huge portion of that. Yes. So, and on television, which was black and white, of course, um, you did have the occasional pop show, and that was probably the window in, into the new culture. You know, especially yeah. Ready Steady to Go, that was the big one. Yes, and um, that yeah, it's Ready Steady Go. It's kind of, and I suppose there was the pirate radio stations like John Peel and the Perfume Garden. Mm. Did were you becoming aware of that kind of? Love. I do remember tuning into the old, what we call a cat's whisker in those days, yes. um, into the pirate stations, uh, not so much out in, on the sea, but from Holland, usually. Oh, yes, yes, the cat's whisker. They, they, they tended to play these soul orientated American music. Yes. Probably. So didn't really get a good response perception or anything but you know the idea was that you are trying to find these new sounds new rhythms and new attitudes yes absolutely did you go to the vna exhibition a couple of years ago so you want a revolution which had a lot of that kind of it's uh, the 60s you know both in music film fashion clothes yeah. you know just a mm. sort of it, it it was an explosive time i realized and and you had people like joe boyd and um Barry Miles, who were doing those kind of underground mm. clubs mm. and sort of happenings. Were you, did you sort yeah. of start picking up on those kind of experiences? We, we were probably just a little bit too young. I say we, because Susan and me are the same age. So when he started about Joe Boyd, I mean, they were really, what, 65, 66, 67? Yes. You know, those underground sort of type alternative events. And we were... Not 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 young, young, but just a bit younger than the current crowd of maybe nineteen or twenty. We would have been fifteen or sixteen, so yeah. you had that whole age alcohol thing, yeah, and money. Of course, we didn't have the money. No, no. But then, yes, the white heat. Was it um, one of the prime ministers mentioned the white heat of industry? Oh yes, that was Wilson, wasn't it? Wilson, yes, I know. Yeah, it was the white great. heat of technology. Yeah, it was. It was going to explode. Did it happen? No, not really. Did it? <laughs> not the seventies. Seventies were a bit like, <laughs> funny number, weren't it? But they they also sort of developed because I, I suppose it was seventy two, seventy three when I I was at that age where you start, you know, getting obsessed with top of the pops and and everything looks very exciting, even the sweet and Gary Glitter. Mm. But luckily, mm. David Bowie was my first single and my first love. Thank God for that. Um, mm. So that that was quite a handy when I could have it could have been anybody. But what was happening for you then, as you were getting older in the seventies and and sort of moving towards? Well, um, other I went events? to a secondary school as I said in Brixton. You know. It's very ordinary in every way. Um, I, I got thrown out, left, whatever you want to call it, when I was 15. So the first thing you did, you just had to, to get a job. Now, true to, to some degree, what Harold Wilson was to say, there was a, it was easy to get a job. 
there was, you could just literally walk into one in those days, uh, just the way it was. The economy was booming, growing, swinging London. Yes. And so I ended up working in a local office, simple as that. Yes. Nothing clever, you know. No, but um, at least you didn't have uh, computers and the internet to um, deal with on your first day at work. You just had lots of paper, probably, and a, and a file. It was just it? paper and pencil. It really was columns <laughs> of numbers to add up and make sure they balanced at the end of the day. And, <laughs> and it was pretty dull. It's dull, isn't it? Let's face it. <laughs> yeah. But then when do you start having your epiphany and think, actually, I want to do something more than just spend the next 40 years climbing up that ladder mm. well coming back to the job the good thing was it gave me money that's all that we, we ever went to work for because you were suddenly in control of your life to some degree you know had some money coming in it was yours you could do what you wanted then you could buy the records then you can buy the album and the new trousers and the shoes and all these things which you want when you're 16 started to happen and yeah. to, to, to burn on that five days to get your wage back it was a a fair swap for me. Yes, absolutely. I always remember that scene on Quadrophenia was um, the character that Phil, Phil Daniels was playing. He just, you know, mm. he was always having cash and doing very little mm. at work, but um, and yeah. living for Friday and the weekend. So when That was you... it. You live for that. I think teenagers don't do that now. I'm not sure. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm no. so, I'm, I'm, I don't even know. We, 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 you know, we had a cycle, didn't we? You went to work, you came home, you went to work, you came, and you had the money, you spent the money, so you had to go back to work. And this went on until you learned a bit better. So. We, we have no idea what TikTok is or Snapchat, really. That's no. what said. <laughs> I'm not sure that's, that's such a bad thing. No. Yeah, it was more personal then. You, you literally said, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see you, a friend or whoever, where I'll see you on that corner in three days at five o'clock. That was it. There's no communication in between. You just no. were there. <laughs> you just remembered you had to be there. This is true. So when did you start to feel kind of entrepreneurial and think actually I want to do something else it was never a conscious decision it was just an accident from day to day to waiting to happen really opportunities came they still come into my life now right. and you either see them or, or you don't and, and I was fortunate I could always see an angle or a different way or oh that seems interesting let's get involved Never sort of, sort of equating, well, if you want me to be involved, I want. It was never that. Just I'm happy to be involved. And from that, you learn and take your chances. Yes. But that's quite, I mean, it's quite an interesting step. I mean, there's a, you know, I, I know from sort of Alan McGee's story, you know, he starts in the early 80s, you know, in a band. Then he runs a small rec uh, record label and then he, he has a club in he goes from you know Scotland to London has a small club and you know continues the record label and in, this is all through the 80s and then obviously the next decade you know he hits hits it with sort of oasis and people like that so it sort of you know it does kind of gradually happen but how did you sort of you know have that inspiration to um Yes, start well, at I think such an what you just, just, I'm just going to try and plug Susan in. Give me a second. I will. Okay, to plug her in. That sounds like something from Carry On Screaming, actually. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we could do Carry On Recording. <laughs> Susan, hello. God, you're plugged in. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I hate it. Let's try. This is... This is can you hear? I can, I can oh. vaguely hear you. Can you hear that? Yes. Well, if it's better than nothing, come closer. Come much closer. Come, yeah, come closer. I think that's a line from... Um, come closer. <clears throat> oh, it's one of those ballads from the 80s, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like Move But coming closer. back to... Uh, Phyllis uh, Nelson. Uh, Al, yeah, Alan McGee. Is it Alan McGee? No. Alan yes. McGee. Yeah. Mr McGee. Yes, you just said. He pretty much fell into it by accident. And I think this happens a lot with managers of bands. It's four chaps usually get together, put a bit of making noise and record and try to learn a few heavy metal tracks, you know, or stay away to heaven. And before you know it, it's a friend of a friend is hanging in there who can't play anything. <laughs> and, and he's dragging around 
around the equipment and becomes the manager. And with Alan's case, you know, smart man, but the opportunity opened up and there he went for it. Yes, absolutely. You've got to, you know, you've got to, it was Malcolm Gladwell, I think was it 10,000 hours you put in and then you hit your bit of genius in life. I think, you know, I mean, it's a sweeping statement, isn't it? But I think he realised he'd done some, some sort of maths on that. But then, I mean, because during that period, obviously the 60s had had that great period and for a lot of people, you know, it was all downhill from then. But then when we look back on the 70s, you know, th that generation, everyone wants that zeitgeist. Every teenager from 16 to 18 want their, their kind of thing. They don't want someone else's, even if it's only five years old. Yeah. And then the 80s, uh, the 70s came along and you had glam, you had a bit of heavy metal prog, which was just bizarre. But then, you know, you had the birth in, especially in America, New York, of sort of what was kind of the punk scene really with the New York Dolls and you had Iggy, Iggy Pop and the hmm. Stooges. So were you aware of that kind of kind of thing happening? You know, that, that kind of a movement that was coming and, and almost, God, this is a bit metaphorical, you know, like a wave. Did you sort of think, oh, actually something's kind of grooving here. I might get on. No, not at all. No, I mean, I was listening still too. Neil Young, Bob Dylan at the time. You know, I mean, good music is good music throughout time. And I think the older you get, you have a better understanding and, and a broader range for listening to different things. I'm listening to a lot of jazz at the moment. Yes, and, it does happen. It you does know, happen. probably in the 70s, I would have laughed at people listen to jazz because it was like an attitude that uh, you had to Oh, you keep slightly cutting out there, actually. Do you want to just... Yeah, Yes. Yeah, I think you do as well. I'm seeing your, your image is stuttering. Are we back yeah. online? We're okay now. Yeah, wait a minute. I might just do something on my internet. Wait a minute. I'll need to just... Like, like Can you hear that? I'll see him. Nothing or something. very pale, very, very low. Yeah, wait a minute. I'll just plug this in, which is an ethernet cable, and then I'll take this out. God, this could be a disaster, but at the same time... It might oh, we can be. always come, you know... Re wait a minute. I'll just take that one out and see if that works. Do, are you still with me? Yeah, I'm still with you. Right. Everything's okay. Yeah, no, I just um, did something with the e Ethernet cable. Yeah. Hmm. So, yes, yeah, so you were talking about... Your jazz. image is, is now frozen, but that doesn't matter. Right? But you sound... Oh, there yeah, you're back again. Yeah, yeah back. just put it down to the um, cold weather. Yes, I know. And, and and the political time. Let's face it, it was quite scary last night. Oh, that's... Oh, the whole... Oh, blimey, yeah. yeah. I was, I've, I've just been reading a book how... Um, very good book. It's called by Edward Ludlum, and uh, he's putting together this whole theory about these retired uh, generals from different armies in different countries who who are never should have been retired. They felt, and they should really be running the world. So they join up these secretive underground forces with lots of money, lots of finance, and their plan is to create local disturbances all over the world and there's this literally the left and right fighting it on out on the streets and it this gives them the right to take over with their army <laughs> and it's almost all that happened last night it's a bit too close isn't it so look 76 is this your sort of year when when the the planets lined up Oh, interesting view of planets. We've noticed, because we've been running clubs and promoting for, for for decades, as you know, and there are points where we're writing our book now and we, we kept um, well, all of our stars for the past 40 years. And it's just interesting to see how certain things happen at certain times and no matter how hard you try, if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And other times... That things just happen, and yeah. it is a cycle. Yeah, a long one, you know. So tell us about. Tell us about. I know it's a very long one. Well, hopefully, you know. But yes, December '76, you organised yeah. three gigs at the Roxy. Well, only because, um, again, purely accident. I've found people like Malcolm McLaren I rewrite their history and past as if there was some brilliant plan they were working towards. It's not. <laughs> we, I managed, as you know, the Damned. We have up with them. I then managed Chelsea. They sort of split and created Generation X. 
uh, I managed Generation X, and because of the the anagatur, every, every licensed premises that put music on throughout England was told firmly, if you put this punk stuff on, we will close you down and, lose you, and you'll lose your license, which is a big thing to lose your license. Yes. Um, so I couldn't get any what I call regular bookings work, it just couldn't be done. Um, but through Gene October, uh, who knew the owner of what was Shagaramas, which, which became the Roxy Club, he, he got a booking. I discovered much later the reason we could, he could get us a booking was because they had no license. Therefore, I had nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens with crooked barristers. They know the game. Yes. <laughs> uh, you're not a barrister, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I put the band on uh, to promote them, and that was the, the that was the sole reason. You know, a gig for the band I managed. Yes, and did you, you know, and because it's you, Susan. Was there also any other people part of this kind of? Uh, crew who were doing stuff um whew. specifically with the roxy it was myself susan and barry who was a person i knew because i'd used his like coal hole basement recording studio to do the first uh, demo for the damned so he was involved simply because we didn't have any money <laughs> again he had a very valuable gretsch guitar which he hocked for a couple of weeks to get us the money put down as a deposit to put the gig on, to earn the tickets, <laughs> to get the cash, to get his guitar out of hock. Wow. But the, ho the whole thing was designed to promote Gen X. That was it. Yes. And obviously it was, and was it, it must have been a success. Um, yes, it was. I mean, we've got to remember, it's only held 150 people. It was small. Uh, so we probably got a couple of hundred people. So it was a success. Yes, the place was full. The gig was great. Susie Sue um, supported the Banshees. And, and it, it was really good fun. Yes. And obviously we, then, then you had the Heartbreakers quite a, very quickly after that. Who were Because, again, chance and circumstance, opportunities and seeing the opportunity. <laughs> and here's a good example of what I was saying about you earlier. I was photocopying flyers, which were the early days of flyers and photocopies. And to promote Generation X, I just went to the, some, the local alternative record shops they had you know the records in piled up in rows and you flit through yes. and gave them a flyer because they were obviously interested and said can they hand some out can they put one in the window so i'm walking up wardour street and i'm outside the ship which is the famous pub near the marquee where all the musicians sort of hung out it, it was sort of a a musician's unemployment exchange you know they used to <laughs> hang around there and Malcolm was outside speaking to a chap and I just said oh hi Malcolm how are things because that was just after the anecdote and we got to talking he's what you're doing I gave him a flyer so come see Generation X blah 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 and he was speaking to Lee Black Childers who was the manager of the, the Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers and he said, oh, gee, you got to And so we got to talking. And I, and of course, I knew of the Heartbreakers, and obviously everybody in London on the so-called scene knew about the Heartbreakers. They knew about the tour and all the things that didn't happen that should have happened. Um, and I quickly said to him, look, you know, do you want to play? And of course, he jumped at a chance because the musicians want to play. They're like... Engines, they've got to keep driving. Yeah. They can't sit around doing nothing. So he said, "Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, love to," um, because it was all—it wasn't my premises. It wasn't my license. Not that I knew they didn't have one. It's uh, so I just said, "Well, how about playing next week?" Because I'm thinking on my feet. But if I put Heartbreakers on, I can use the Heartbreakers gig to put another Generation X on, which is the whole point. Because I'm their manager. 
because I thought that would work quite nicely. And he said, yeah, they're fabulous. He wanted a hundred pounds, which was just like you know, a huge amount of money. It just, you know, it wasn't going to add up. Anyway, I negotiated down to uh, to 30 pounds, which is not bad. Yeah. But he said it was conditional on him giving him 15 pound deposit now. And we run around literally one of those early um, Access, Amex, Amex, Amex credit cards. Access. Do you remember them? Access. Oh, yeah. Access. Yeah, yeah. Access. It was the first one, that green thing, green card. Anyway, I don't know how I got it, but I did. So I went in there, took out £15, gave it to him. He was happy. He brought around the drinks for the band, gave him a couple of quid each. Uh, Johnny and... and uh, who was on drums? Oh, um, Jerry Nolan. Jerry. They went straight off and bought some dope, and, and, and that was it. That. They're, they're and I just said, I'll see you next week. Happy junkies. Happy junkies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were. So... So that was just this, this a thing. It just it came my way, saw the move, jumped in there, did the deal, got some more flyers printed, handed those out at the Generation X saying, and next week we have. And, of course, everybody loved that. So that was packed out. And then I used that gig to do promote another Gen X gig just yeah. before Christmas there. Then a seventy-seven came along. How did you mm. navigate that? Did you give up your work then? Did you give up? Your oh, work? I wasn't working. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, I haven't had work since. <laughs> 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 you were just kind of you were just now kind of a full-time hustler then, basically, weren't you? Um, it, it, again, it was easier to find work in those days if you wanted it, and I belonged to what they called a temporary um, employment. Okay. Yes. Thing. So I had a certain amount of skill in the office and all the rest of it. So I, I you know, if I was short of cash, I'd sign up, they'd chuck me into a job for two or three weeks. That was enough. Yeah. So there so was did, ways. So just getting an, an idea, did you then run this club for seven, you know, for a period well, of time? In what the happened then is because of the great reviews we had in, the, in all the music papers, and, and that was the way of communicating, we suddenly had phone calls, and it was a phone call, uh, or, or a tape suddenly arrived in the post at the club saying, we're a punk band from North Shields or from Exeter or Northampton or somewhere, mm-hmm. saying, can we play at your club? And my response, if you're a punk band, then sure. And yeah. so this started to happen. I'm, so I'm trying to juggle two things now. I thought, well, the more times I keep the Roxy open, the more times I can put JNX in as part of this ongoing promotion. But um, like all young bands, they're not very bright and they can't wonder that why I haven't got a, a million pound record deal and they can't understand why they're not touring America. So other people got involved uh, John Ingham, the journalist they yeah. stepped in and said we'll take over your management and all the rest of it and I, and I said yeah go on, I'm not interested because it was more fun uh, running in the club yes. where you could put an event on uh, it was new, it was risky it was chancy and it was exciting yes. and immediate did you, I mean, at that stage, CBGBs hadn't really been a thing, so you couldn't really sort of model yourself. I was, I was hardly aware of it. No. I didn't know about that at all. Well, and the Mud Club was a bit later, wasn't it? So then... then yeah, later, yeah, 80s. So yeah. Then how did your sort of life and career develop after this kind of... Well, from amazing... one accident to another. We it love just accidents, was... don't we? Yeah, well, they come, they go. <laughs> <laughs> And there's another one just around the corner. Yes, I know. So with the sort of the punk period, and obviously you had your finger very much on the zeitgeist and Mm. pulse, did you, um, yes, uh, did you sort of, did that play out in your life quite nicely, the punk period? Not really, because um, after putting the bands on and signing a stupid contract of paying too much rent for the, uh, the hire of the Roxy, and all the things that went with it, the you know maintenance, cleaning, employing people, and Silly buying drinks, out. all that stuff. We were learning it as we went along. We had no experience, um, but, but it, it took its toll. It wore, wore us down, and so 
we pretty much got burnt out by you know, the hundred days that we were there. Not before, obviously, we, we recorded the, the, the famous album, Rock CWT2. Yes. But uh, we'd sort of had enough. We really had. We were getting threats from the landlord, summonses, <laughs> being taken to court for damage to the premises, not paying the rent. 101 things that sort of just piled in. Yes. We were focused on the music and the bands, not the business. Obviously, we've learned everything since. And yes. if you want someone to run a club, just ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the pros and cons. So then, then what, you know, are you able to sort of give us an idea of what happens when you sort of think, right, I'm not going back to the office, but I would like to, I've experienced this moment and yeah, yeah. Um, buzz. what happens after that immediately afterwards because we were literally thrown out the club and you can read it in our book which is the roxy our story when it is specifically our story it's not a history of punk it's just our involvement in it and that specific um location the roxy yes then, yeah, so then what happens to the rest of the 70s? Well, so, so we're out on our ears. We then used the recordings we did to make that album, which was through that summertime. So uh, we were sort of occupied with speaking to the bands that were recorded, signing contracts with them, doing the deal with EMI. And so that kept us busy for a while. Then I started to look for another premises um, and we, we came across some sort of shitty people and you could sort of see if I get involved with them, this is going to be the same game scenario all over again, which did happen because I opened up um, with this crook. Um, the, well, I called it the Vortex at first, which was on, well, Waldorf Street, that's right at the top. It used to be called Crackers like a disco thing yeah. and I, I set it all up and then I realized that um, the Vortex was the name of an art movement uh, pre-war in Germany I, I did so I changed the name to uh, what was the it void. the void the void right yeah. right and I wasn't even allowed in I booked in Adjaman, the Slits, Susie and the Banshees, the Buzzcocks, the Heartbreak you know good lineup ready to go for the first month and I turned up on the first day, and the bouncers wouldn't let me in. And me, and Susan, of course, she says, and me, and, and me, and Susan. He, he can hear and you. And me, and I, me and you, <laughs> me and I. Yeah, anyway, so, oh, so here we go again, and we, we, that's it. Next time I do something, I'll um, make yeah. sure the paperwork's sorted. It's, it's ours properly, leased, signed, licenses, the whole thing done properly. That took a couple of years, but we did it eventually. But in the meanwhile, people would come to me and say, why do you go open up Club Andy? And, da, da, da. and one of those people was um, Steve Strange. Right. And Rusty Egan. Um, now, they, they came to me because we knew um, Steve from a friend in Wales, in Cardiff. Um, I employed him as a, I gave him a job just because of a friendly connection. I didn't know the boy. Um, at, at the Roxy, in the cloakroom, just to, you know, earn some couple of bob. But I then found out within a you know, few days, he was actually stealing more things from the coach than I was paying him. So obviously I let him go. But the, the, Steve was always light-fingered. He yeah. always going stealing. Um, anyway, so he, they, they came to me and said, when are you going to open another club, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm not until I get a proper premises. He said, I've been looking. And I introduced him to... The Blitz? No, before the Blitz. Oh, right. he, did a bow, he did a Bowie night. David in, Claridge. Where was it? David Claridge. And David... They did a, a Bowie night in a basement club that I found and I, I could see the same problem so I said I'm not doing it but if you want to go and see these guys I gave them the details and I, I showed them how to create flyers how to distribute them and, and print them and and just a just sort of rudiments of running a club night 
So that happened. And then the five, six, which they said that they come to me and said, Oh, they've just chucked us out. They, they, they don't want us in there. They've taken over the night. <laughs> I thought, Oh yeah, that sounds just about what I expected. But you know, they were young. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, then, then I said, look, I know somebody else who's got a premises what might be interested. And they're, they're much more decent people. And uh, I took them to the Blitz in Covent Garden. Right. My God, that's another yeah. movement that you... Well, that's you, right. And I, so I set all that up for them, introduced them to the manager and so on. But I said, I did want to be involved because, again, it was a one-off night thing. I wanted a full-time proper club. Anyway, it, it went on to be a huge success. Yes. You could get 29 James Street with the warehouse in Covent Garden and there'd be offices in the yeah. basement warehouse. And we, we really the meanwhile, I, I found uh, some... Covent Garden was going through... Uh, a renaissance but this was as its downtime it had been emptied of the the covent garden market the flower and fruit market and moved to nine elms which is a further along the, the thames and so the the old covent garden was stagnant every sh shop space warehouse was empty for like a, a, a mile square probably yeah. and uh the, the, the GLC, the Greater London Council at the time, was renting out these big buildings of virtually nothing temporarily, but no one really wanted them. No one sort of temporary six month accommodation. But I took one on and, and, and uh, 29 James Street, and we rented out to friends in a music business who didn't have any money. So they were PR managers and know. so on. Just, um, you know, nominal rents of three or four, five pound a week. And between the lot, I managed to make enough to live on and have a little sort of centre of artistic happening. And then we, in the, into the shop, I, friends of mine who owned the boy shop, boutique in king's road yeah. one of them wanted to split and move away so i encouraged him to come to Covent garden and he took over the ground floor as his um px, PX the shop which well, became very fashionable and people like, like steve were the shop boy princess and, julia. And, and princess julia julia she, she she worked there as well selling these new so did you i mean during that period obviously you, you've sort of got an amazing sort of sense of business plus also um a certain amount of sort of um ability to sort of take those hard knots and disappointments and sleepless nights worrying about how things are going to work out in the morning but how did you navigate the kind of the 80s because obviously we'd had you know thatcher got in 79 then there was a huge amount of kind of i suppose for some people who sort of were on that wave opportunity with other people there wasn't such opportunity but then it all as with all these kind of moments it all goes badly wrong in the end you hope so anyway um so so then you know were you sort of aware of that other you know you obviously were aware of the new romantic stuff but there was all the kind of the other kind of indie pop stuff that was kind of happening mm. the yeah. john peel show well, a, the whole punk stuff really exploded but we, we had so much and so fed up with it that we just weren't interested but it was growing big. The people were touring, you know, the bands like, okay, the police weren't strictly a punk band, but they came from the roots of what we were doing. And they became huge. And you get the Stranglers and all those, the whole thing got quite big. Yeah. But we weren't interested. But coming into the 80s, uh, that's when we found the first fridge, which was in Brixton High Road. So, and, and this was now... The opportunity for us to sit down with the landlord, draw up a lease, get some money, you know, build, convert, and actually have a proper club. Uh, the only downside, it took us two years to put it together, uh, because we were, again, the economy was doing quite well, so you were able to borrow money easily. I was borrowing uh, and raising cash was a little bit easier. And we'd sort of learnt a bit more by then. Uh, and we did it all, but come May. summer of 81, <laughs> you know, you had the bricks and riots literally on the front door of our club. And so, <laughs> not a good uh, time. No. <laughs> but then, you know, yes, it's a, but we soldiered on. 
but you sold your dolls. Yes, this is the thing, isn't it? You were definitely, so were you, you were still sort of co-owning the other places in, in Comic Garden, but while, it, you know, opening up the fridge, was this, is this the case that you were sort of managing to spin several plates at once here? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we, we had, uh, we moved from Carbon Garden to London Bridge. Borough we, Market. Borough Market, again, which was a very run down area, much like Carbon Garden was. There's always big bright ideas of redevelopment, the new modern London, etc. But in the meanwhile, it's in the doldrums, empty warehouses, empty offices, and so on. So we moved with all the people that we had, well, most of them, uh, from Covent Garden to London Bridge because the GLC wanted all their properties back. Yeah. Because that was always the deal, a short term let. And we moved up there and we built somewhere, um, some recording studios, not recording, rehearsing studios, and again, rented out space to various people that knew and created another sort of artistic music community of people there and i was collecting the rent so landlord stroke whatever yes and i was using that money (laughs) to build the club in brixton the fridge (laughs) how long did you run the fridge for oh let me see 81 till 2004 so that's what 25 years blimey so did it was this the place because i think i even went there once where you'd have people like soul to soul doing yeah yeah they started with us. They've been around for some time. And uh, I was with club life. Nights rise and fall. They don't last forever. So you've got to be looking out for new events to put in. Most of them we put together ourselves, but we can't do everything all of the time. So when I'd heard about Soul to Soul, They'd had a very successful events around London. They were pulling in the high hundreds, not just a couple, because we needed 2,000 people. That's a big premises. Yeah. Um, and I managed to catch them just at the time before their big record came out. They, they used our dance floor at, um, as a t- t- test bed, really, for um, Back to Life and Back to Reality. We had various versions being mixed and played each week on the dance floor until one was the one that worked perfectly. Yes, and it's still there with us. So you you ran this right up to 2004. 2004. We, we, We still had it to 2010, but we weren't, we rented out from 2004 because we'd been in the, say the promotion business for over 30 years and so you know we were tired my god i would imagine were you a bit worried when you signed that lease for doing it it sounded like a very long-term lease you you put yeah i was was, um, did you not sort of as you were sort of signing thinking god will i still really be into this is this all going to end in tears did you have amazing Uh, no i didn't i don't don't think ahead (laughs) too much it doesn't good you to, to think too much really yeah. but I, i'm more a, of a i just jump in and see what happens yeah but it's quite a jump between you know the roxy which was like almost you know weekly to something that you were yeah. going to have decades to your yeah. your name ah, well this is where i felt it as as, 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 as surety and, and confidence that if and I, it's not an effort with me when we make this incredibly successful no one can take it away from us or kick us out mm. see so the more hard the harder we worked and the stronger we made it then it will come back to us by the fact we had this security of tenure yeah it's just interesting because obviously you're in that world that is the youth market and there is mm. the, the 16 to 18 year old will mm. always want their thing so that means music fashion always changes mm and sort of being able to kind of see what comes next is quite difficult for a lot of people because, you know, we, we often like what we grew up to with, but we don't really understand what the next generations, you know, are into. But as you're into that market, you, you obviously have to sort of, you know, in hindsight, you realise the club scene was big, but it does also change, doesn't it, from, you know, things like Acid House to Chicago House to, you know, grime to reggae to ragga you know there, there was a lot of different things that you must have thought oh my god I'm gonna have to be into this you know it's a long way from Susan the Banshees and Generation X isn't it oh um no, no because 
I can, I can look at this sort of retrospectively now, but uh, it's something I believed at the time, but now has been clarified, is that each generation is its own strata in terms of st style, music, dress and attitude. We all live in our little stratas. Now, being in a successful club, which we came, we had the, the next generation knocking on our door saying, why don't you put this on? Why don't you do that? And most people might say, oh, go away, and I've got the music I like. Well, we said, yeah, let's have a listen. <laughs> what can you do? How many people can you bring? Yes. See, I didn't have to like it. No. I mean, as it happens, I did. I mean, cause I, I, I wouldn't put on, you know, some of this... Everything. Drill, drill music and stuff. It's just too annoying and too aggressive. I tended to veer to more creative, um, colourful characters, mm -hmm. people. And so, yeah, you had, you know, the Shah days came with that sort of soul jazz. And I could see that was fun and interesting. The people that followed it were colourful. They made an effort. They really enjoyed the event and so on. Um, you know, then, then you had the acid jazz crowd. They were, again, off-center. They weren't the mainstream. They weren't you know, the big disco. They were musically driven. Yes. And the, and the way they dressed and the style. And so, yeah, we thought that's, that's interesting. That was a huge success. Then Soltasol came along, who Salt managed to... to, to that, was that? Soltasol was before that. was 88. Uh, maybe back to front. Yes. But yes. The, the, so we were in tune. They came to us and said, can we rent or we hire? Can we do this? And, and I listen, look at the people. Are they just crooks, and, you know, jumping in on a scene? Or are they really music lovers? And all those people were music lovers, from acid jazz to old to soul. And then you had your your early house stuff. Some people came my way. They didn't have any money, but they had some nice ideas. So we put together an event that we controlled. That was called Planet Love. That lasted for about a year or two. And that was the really early days of house. We're talking 86. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, Frankie, Frankie Knuckles and people yeah, like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had Frank Knuckles and we had them all. Yes. Um, Africa Bombata, which is not house, but he was yes. there. It was quite close though, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so then, and then sort of what have you focused yourself on in the last decade and, and a bit? Going well, on? well, that's right. We, we sort of shut up shop completely and got rid of the club and the bar in 2000. 2010 was the club, and then we had a bar next door, which was hugely successful, and we sold that in 2015. That's about then. Right. So so that that's that. We've just been catching up with ourselves. Yes. You know, we've finally had a weekend at home. Had a weekend sort of, um, yeah, thinking. It's at home for us, no one else. But did you, I mean, obviously, you know, because you've, you've, you put together a book, the book which came out mm. about three years ago. Mm. And um, so you, projects like that must be quite enjoyable to sort of go back and capture. Oh, yeah. Was and that, was that we're, we're doing exactly that with the fridge, which is going to be ended up as probably maybe four or five or six books. We're doing that right now. and But the difference is the Roxy ran for 100 days with us. Yes. With us. It carried on with some other people, but not with us. Whereas the fridge ran for uh, 25 years. So we've got 25 years of archives, photos, footage, film, flyers, artwork, you name it. And we're um, just really consolidating all that. We have 30 three-drawer filing cabinets <laughs> full of material, which I'm scanning, copying, and trying to collate, really. And that will keep us going for at least another two or three years. Well, easy. I know. Well, it's yeah. interesting, because in this last 12 months, and it wasn't just because people knew the pandemic was coming. It was just the fact that I've noticed there's been a lot of books that have been coming out. And I realise there's a period of time that moves or goes by that we suddenly look back and, and sort of look at not I wouldn't say it's just about nostalgia and looking and thinking oh it was a golden time but I think it just reevaluates it and I think 25 to 30 years seems to be a period where we suddenly think actually we'll 
you know, there's a lot of things I think would have just got thrown away and thrown in the bin, mm. whether it was flyers, flexi discs, you know, just mm. memorabilia. And then suddenly you go, oh, wait a minute. I think that's kind of, we could put that in a museum. That's kind of yeah. that historic yeah. bit. You know, I know there was the- We're doing work. that now. We had um, Bonhams, the auctioneers, who came round about a year ago, and they just came to look at our uh, Vivian Westwood clothing from the early sex shop days. And they put a horrendous valuation on like 60,000 plus just for <laughs> something like 10, maybe a dozen or 15 items of clothing. Yes. All original, all from the period that we manage because we have a four bedroom house for two people. So we've got lots of storage. Yes. And we just kept things. Whereas Barry, our old partner at the Roxy, he was moving from squat to squat and he's got nothing. No. Of so the what, time. What happened to Barry? And who is Barry? He, he's in America. Right. He left because he really was, he, he was not on promoter. He wasn't a club owner. He, he, we needed his money at the time. He's a musician. He mm. always was. He's a huge fan of Johnny Thunders and Hop. And that was his sole dream to play with them. And he went to America and he did go on tour as their guitarist, but it all fell apart because John was just too much of a junkie. I mean, Barry was too, but (laughs) a little bit together. But he ended up in California. And I think he, we sort of occasionally exchange emails, but he feels very shortchanged. The whole Roxy thing and how we've got the glory and he hasn't. But, you know, it's just the way it is. It is the way it is, actually. You, I mean, on that level, did you manage? Because obviously, I mean, yeah, it was kind of interesting because you mentioned Lee Childers, who um, he was quite a mover and shaker, wasn't he? He, he managed oh. the Rockettes from... yeah. Yeah. Well, he already had, had a, 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 a soft eye for a pretty boy. You know that. Yes. <laughs> and the Rockettes were, you know, attractive young rockabilly boys. They were very smutty sniff. Looked, you know, yeah. when he was photographed by Robert Maplethorpe. He was, you know, quite oh, really? Okay. So, um, yes, he, he, and he's, but yeah, so uh, dear old Lee. But did you, I mean, you obviously met these amazing kind of characters. I suppose. Well, Lee time, worked for us for about six months. Right. In yes. the fridge, yeah. and did you and did you come across people like um, DeFreeze, you know, Bar- um, De- you know, no. main, any of those kind of characters? No, never before our time. Yes, because it was. I mean, did you? I mean, looking back at your life, you must have sort of seen oh. there was one or two characters that you must have had great respect for, and they helped. And there must have been a few people that tried to almost destroy you, would you say? Uh, it's not so much destroy, it's never conscious, but they, they want what you've got, and they're going to come in and get it somehow. The only person that the person I sort of liked and respected was Tony Secunda, who was of the previous generation. He used to, he was a brother of, um, uh, what's his brother's called? Tony Secunda. Danny Secunda, who owned track records, um, who you know recorded Jimi Hendrix, right? Instance. Yeah, you know, so and he managed Marianne Faithful, um, who Wizard, yeah. Um, Paul McCartney, Paul, he might have managed Paul yeah, McCartney wings. at one stage wings. when he was yeah. Wings, that's right, with Denny Lane, yeah. yeah. So he was one of the, the old school who was for me so fashionably mad, uh, that, that we got on really well. Yes, and did um, yeah, and 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 how did you just like kind of almost lastly? I mean, how did you cope with those moments where you just felt under threat and just felt like, oh, this is getting quite heavy? Oh, there's never a single point that we were under the threat, other than I chewed off too much, borrowed too much money, and was wondering where the way out was. But you just just gotta suck it up. You do something you the new generation, the woke brigade, might, might like learn suck it up, move on. <laughs> so, I mean, just lastly, then, what would you say to a and you know, the two of you, an 18 year old self, if you could have given them, you know, like just a couple of words, just as, as they were sort of wandering out and thinking, right, I'm going to start doing some exciting projects? Mm. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Um. It's impossible to answer, so other than maybe, if anything, I would say I should have taken a few more risks, you know, and 
just gone further you know yeah yes yeah. yeah and you susan susan can't hear you. let me just hand over my head for a second oh no sorry susan i feel i feel so bad that you you didn't have the headphones and you were part of this story oh yes you, you were well, the and andrew met um 17th of january 1966 so that had that up it's a long time yes so well, i've I'm, always I'm, been there you absolutely partners in crime so you're yeah 54 years you'll be getting a, a, a telegram from the queen soon probably yeah yeah she'll probably sign it well hopefully it's that now hopefully it's elizabeth not charlie because you know let's face it it wouldn't feel so special anyway yeah if you were able to um yeah sort of give, if you could have given yourself a little bit of advice or something that you've learned over those decades i just wondered if there was something that you thought oh yes i would i'd learned a lesson or which isn't necessarily a negative lesson but it's something that you'd have thought, yeah that would have that would have been no it wouldn't have changed the word of it everything even the bad time and andrew went to prison for vat fraud which Ooh. um was quite an interesting time um some really bad but brilliant times i wouldn't change anything of it no apart from andrew going to prison of course. Yeah, yeah, but even then you can turn it, it, it we came into through. a positive because it is just that strength of character strength of mind saying this is what it is you know deal with it and yep. we had places that people could come and we just said yeah go and do it um we didn't put any restrictions on anybody did we no. yeah all the people we employed well used to work behind the bar they were all part of the club situation we were never ever a venue and and we've always been clubs so everyone is part of it yes sometimes we fall out with people and they go off and think they can do it on their own but you know so so it, they was, it, was it the case that being a partnership like you two like having two of you oh yeah worked really well that you could just keep the other person slightly balanced or if they were going down yeah, that's could, right i just wondered and watch each other's backs or run ideas off you know when you were having a private chat well um andrew's a leo and i'm a piscean so it's completely so you've got fire and water there so you can see how that works really well and sometimes i have to say <laughs> no well, somebody says, yeah, that's bloody marvellous. Go for it. So, yeah, we do balance off each other throughout the years that we've been going clubbing and yeah. in our own nights. But the whole point is every night you're putting on a show and that's the excitement, the music, the lights, the bar, the dr good old days you could smoke, drink and do everything. Yes. Um, it was just fun. I mean, it was a 24-hour lifestyle. I mean... You can't just think it's a go at nine and go home at five. It's our life. Yeah. And that has been our life, right? Still our life, isn't it? Yeah, Still yeah. talking yeah. about it. <laughs> and it's quite writing something. about it. I mean, obviously you were, you know, I mean, this is kind of very hypothetical. I mean, were, were you ever sort of look, when you've been looking through the archives, do you sometimes wish you'd also been part of the kind of live, you know, band scene as well, that rather than just the club scene? Well, we did put on bands. We've had loads of bands over the years, haven't we? Oh, we right. Mark Harmon. We've had loads of people, which the name has escaped me, but yes. yeah, we love a band, you know. Although we've got loads on. Uh, but then somebody would, like us, outside promoter, would have hired it from us. Yeah. So it would be, but all our team, a technical team, yeah. sound engineers would all be part of the production. Yeah. Um, but um, we work. Yeah, we love live music, don't we? Well, the, the difference is, as Susan said, we were a club. Yeah. Because we paid for the band, we promoted a band, we took the risk, we took the reward. Whereas a, a venue is, well. you, you know, sits there as an empty dead space yeah. until someone comes along and pays for it. Yeah. Big difference. Would you have to remember that? Some people say, oh, they have a club, but it's actually a club night in, say, the Camden Palace or whatever. We had it seven days a week. We paid the rent, rates, licenses, took people along, staff-wise, security, production. So all in-house, just for me and Andrew. So it's only us that said, if it doesn't work, on to the next one. You don't have any board of directors or committees and all that stuff. Can't stand all that. Just, <laughs> you know, and... Um, okay, so you'd have a couple of empty nights, but then we you just hit it 
at the right moment and hugely successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all through the 90s, we had a gay club called The Daisy Chain. That was the 80s, wasn't it? Um, Cold, miserable Tuesday night, middle of Brixton, not like now, all happy, happy, dark, miserable. And it will be full to the brim. And you have people at the bar, like Jean-Paul Gaultier, Anthony Price, um, Rupert Everett, you know, before they were famous, <laughs> Mark yeah. Carmen. Not quite famous then. Not well, relatively, but not yeah. like now. And it would be hugely, hugely popular. Such fun. Jimmy Fox was the host, put on little scenarios, strippers, but just sort of artistically done, that kind of thing. Then we had Child Baby. Then in the 90s, we had Love Muscle. Saturday night, two, three thousand. Gay, mainly men, but girl, women as well. Fantastically successful, huge. And Fridays, we'd have the trance night, Escape from Samsara, Pendragon, Logic. Completely different crowd, but it all mixed and it was terribly successful. Yes. So I forgot what your question was. I'm sorry. Like, but, shut up now, woman. Go back no, to no, no, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, you know, you have this very iconic, kind of going back even further, the iconic Live at the Roxy album, which probably sold a huge amount and is kind of now yeah, one of those we, artists. Did, we can tell you how many we sold. 17 uh, we, in the charts. No, about 45,000 copies, which is pretty good. We almost got a, a silver album. Oh, so close. So that's, you know, not bad. What is it? You know, completely unknown bands unknown sort of style of music at the time, you know, from an unknown premises at the time. So, yeah, it's a huge... And we, we were told, I think, there was a PR bullshit, but uh, EMI said it's the second biggest, biggest compilation album after um, John Lennon in, in, Hyde, in, in New York or something. Right. The Bangladesh concert, that's right. But I think oh, that was PR. That was George Harrison. That was George Harrison, was it? wasn't it? Yeah. John Lennon. Oh, George. Well, Poor old it's George. All the point is, I, I think it was PR. Yes, no, it was, it was it was George, wasn't it? He was he was going through his spiritual moment, really. So yes, there you go. I mean, I mean, just I mean, on the on your bookkeeping front, did that when you when you had that horrendous experience, did you did that change you a lot? By the way, when what? Sorry, you know the your book the bookkeeping experience of going to prison. I mean, did that was that a kind of a game changer in your life? Well, it made us be more careful what we didn't put in the bin because <laughs> the count the police used to go through all our rubbish um and so that we learned that be careful what change. you write in diaries it, it's another lesson learned it wasn't so much a game changer it was just a, um, another lesson learned in the whole process of our lives yes well i always yeah, just be more careful don't get caught yes no but i remember your track better Yes. Well, I just remember the story of the Hacienda in Manchester where they hadn't sort of been doing very good bookkeeping. And when one day, I think someone just kind of, someone came into the the, the club and, and a young person behind the bar just gave them some sort of document. I don't know. It was the accounts, but they weren't being sort of accounted for, if you know what I mean. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, the Hacienda suddenly has kind of financial issues. I just wondered if, if you sort of realise, oh yeah, we were a bit naive pre that and then after that we thought right we need to up our game a bit well, the reason was that um we got into this financial situation was because we had another bricks and riots in 1985 yeah. um and basically okay. it was either you paid the staff the bands and everyone was working on that night or you were very sensible put money aside for the VAT. But then you'd have no but club. But then you can't pay the rent, the so you don't have a club anyway. So you keep on going, thinking It'll the next night's going to be a big success. And, we'll clear it and, all up. and then when we were really getting good around about mid-80s, uh, we got v- raided by the VAT department, home, the club, the managers, our, we had an accountant at the time, a lawyer, all raided at the same time. Quite a big thing. And they took about three years to go through all the paperwork. And we were getting quite successful then, yeah, weren't we? We yeah. were able to open the balcony. and. But throughout that time, it's not, this is not an excuse, it's just a fact that no one Since would lend you any money. In, in 81, because of the first riots, really for the next three or four years, the 
papers were banging on about rights on Brixton and troubles in Brixton, don't go to Brixton. All this negativity was there all the time. Fortunately, young people obviously Didn't ignore care, it. They? Like they ignore the COVID now, they ignored it. But <laughs> the, the business, it didn't. I mean, the banks and all the rest of it, they wouldn't touch us. The breweries wouldn't lend us money. We couldn't get credit. We couldn't get insurance. All these things were happening. And there was no furlough leave in those days, no handouts from the government. Yeah. It was like tough. Yes. But we had two clubs. I'm but not it was sure a problem you... not of our making. You know, you know, we, we don't run the country. I mean, and the, the riots, you know, as you know, were the social Well, issue we had the problem. first fridge, which was from 81 to 1984. Then the landlord decided to rent it to Lambeth Council. Thank you very much. So we got kicked out of it. Then we moved into the big fridge, which was the Ace Cinema yeah. from 85, well, right the way through, really. So yeah. that was pretty tough times. And thanks to my mum and friends and Joe Strummer and a couple of other people lent us money to keep on going because you really didn't have any. Yeah. Um, Blimey. So, but we loved it. You see, it was a whole point. People came that came to our club nights and loved it, and people worked for us loved it. So it's that sort of pioneering spirit, I suppose. We're not going to let them get us. Them being them out there. Yes. And the thing when Andrew we got taken to court about the VAT, the judge kind of liked us, wiped off the debt gave Andrew a prison centre, and the VAT people were furious. And they thought that it would hit the papers, um, uh, club owners, VAT, fraud, prison centre. But it, it never hit that. Nobody, they thought that the VAT people were the wrong ones. <laughs> and we got some good press out of it. Nice. Uh, well, so it's, it's, we've had a lot of fantastic support. Yes. Because... People generally have liked what we've done right the way through. We've had a few people can't stand us, but that's bound to happen. Um, but we um, just, as I say, carry on. Yes, absolutely. What else would they do? No one would employ us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. Anyway, look, true, this, absolutely. This has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much, Susan and Andrew, for that. Oh, yeah. I just, just to make sure, how do you just to make, you know, because I was saying at the beginning, about Polish surnames and um, and um, I know we've got in because I come from Metford we had a, a Polish family the surname was Katisha how do you pronounce your surname? How do you pronounce your surname? Susan's the best. Chesowski. Chesowski. I'll practice that. <laughs> but no, and I'm but that, easy. I'm a Carrington. Yeah, I know. You that's, are. You know that's so much. <laughs> that's no royalty, I'm afraid. No, there you go. No dynasty. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been yeah, thank you. nice to speak to you. And, and uh, uh, there you go. Again. We're gonna, you're going to love Zoom now, aren't you? Possibly not. Yeah. <laughs> thank but, you then. Uh, and uh, keep, keep, keep finding those archives. I we shall will. click off. All right. Bye. Thank bye. you. Bye bye. In, Oh, yes. There you go. I click off. I think that was a kind way to say we're going. Right. That was the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much to Andrew Chesovsky and also Susan Carrington for giving me the time for that interview about the Roxy. There is also this book that came out. We probably mentioned it, actually. The Roxy, the Roxy, our story, the club that forged punk in a hundred nights of madness, mayhem and misfortune. It's on paperback. Or, yes, it's available in paperback. Came out two years ago and is available from, I don't know, probably the internet in Amazon, I'm just guessing. Right, this is it. Uh, if you want to contact me, I don't know why you want to, but you might say, David, I'd like to just say hi. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This is, uh, yeah, C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Fascinating stuff. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.